And this is Mike McGinn with my podcast, our podcast, You, Me, Us Now. And I have to say, I really love that song. You all probably know this is written by Woody Guthrie. We've all learned it in school. We probably all sang it. It's this tremendous affirmation of a shared vision and narrative of like that we all can share in this place. And I guess there's a lesson in here, and it actually ties into the, the title of this show, You, Me, Us Now. You, me, us now is a phrase that I learned as an organizer. It's how you connect with another individual to get them involved in what you're doing. You, you get their story, you get your own story, and then you talk about what you care about and what you're going to work on together now. So that's the name. In my story, I'm Mike McGinn. I was a neighborhood and environmental activist who just took on crazier and harder fights. I thought I could win them. I thought I could make a difference. I thought I could make my neighborhood and city better. One thing led to another, and I I became mayor. And then one day, I became not mayor. But the journey was amazing, and I met other people like me. And today, I'm going to have joining me on the show Tim Harris. He's a homeless advocate. He runs Real Change Newspapers. He's did this several times. He's been arrested in D.C. in front of the White House. He's built up homeless empowerment organizations He stood on the steps of City Hall, ringing a gong for every homeless person in the city of Seattle, 3,000 of them. And and this is a hell of a hard issue. I can report to you, not just on root causes and not just on solutions, but on public attitudes towards homelessness. As as mayor, I I stood in front of, I did multiple town halls and I stood in front of people and said, can't you do something? Why don't you do something about it? And for some, it was figure out how to house them. And for others, it was, and particularly in the more well-off neighborhoods, I hate to report, it was, can't you remove them from our view? Because it really makes us feel bad about our shared vision of of what we're supposed to be. There's another part to that Woody Guthrie song, right? He was the Dust Bowl troubadour. He was the voice of people who were forced off the land in the Dust Bowl. And there were lyrics we learned, but there were others we didn't. Tim, you quoted me some earlier. Give me the first one. So, yeah, the great lost lyric is that I saw a sign. It said private property. The other side said nothing. That side was made for you and me. And that's, that's not the lyric we learn in school. You only get that when you, when you Google the lyrics. Well, I Googled the lyrics, and I've got you another one. Uh, one bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office, I saw my people as they stood hungry. I stood there wondering if this land was made for you and me. Mm. So that's the other part of the dark side. So welcome to the show, Tim. It's really great to have you here. Well, I'm glad to see you again. <laughs> um, you remember how we first met, Tim? I do remember how we first met. It was at a community forum over in the, the Denny Regrade area, and I'd been invited by a community activist. You'd just thrown your hat into the ring. And it was a kind of a crazy meeting. It was a crazy was meeting. A I do remember this meeting. meeting. It got hijacked by this very loquacious homeless guy who had outfitted a shopping cart and had this very manic idea for how he could take this to scale and wanted your support. And he was kind of dominating the meeting. And uh, you were so patient and respectful 
of this guy. And that was the moment that I decided that, that this McGinn character was somebody that I would like to be mayor. Well, I, and I appreciated your support. And I remember I remember that. And I had forgotten until we had this conversation that that was our first meeting. And I remember I was looking to you saying, I hope Tim knows how to handle this because this is really hard. And you were just sitting there patiently smiling. So I took my cue from you, Tim. Well, I, I was did my best. I was I was amused, and I think sometimes in those situations, that's the best you can do. Is just let it go, right? So, tell me about the Real Change newspaper, and tell me about the work you do right now. So, Real Change is a, new, a weekly newspaper that has been in Seattle for twenty years. We started in '94 as a monthly. Started as a single staff organization with just me putting out a monthly newspaper. I'd moved here from Boston to start it. Uh, now it's a, a weekly. It has an organizing project. It has uh, vendor support services in addition to the newspaper. On a typical month, we have more than 300 vendors who are out there making a living from selling the newspaper. Over a year, it's about 800 people that make a living from selling the newspaper or, or earn money from selling the newspaper. And it's really about building connections between homeless folks and the broader community and changing perceptions and, and bringing people into the fight for economic and racial justice. So there's a concept behind the paper. What's the concept? Well, you know, I think the core concept is that it's a hand up and not a handout, that this is a way that people can, through their own effort, uh, make a difference in their own lives and connect to the broader community and engage everyone in building a better world. That's not the only advocacy you do, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's always been... It's always been an organizing project. I came out of organizing. So when I was interested in starting a newspaper, it wasn't for the sake of doing a newspaper. It was as a vehicle for activism and, and organizing and really engaging people who are homeless themselves in the broader fight for economic justice in a way that meets their own immediate needs and gives them the space in their lives where they're able to do that. So this wasn't the first paper you tried to start. No, I started another paper in Boston in 92, um, and I'd been organizing homeless folks for two or three years. And, you know, it, it was hard. Homelessness was relatively new at that point. Over the 80s, homelessness tripled or quadrupled in most American cities. It was the beginning of really modern mass homelessness. And a lot of us were trying to figure out how to organize, how to organize homeless people, how to talk about homelessness at a structural level, and, and how to engage people who are most affected as, as activists and this. And what became clear to me was the whole kind of Maslow's hierarchy thing, you know. It was really hard to engage people in what's a long-term and uncertain fight for economic justice when their immediate needs are, are very dire and mostly unmet. So the street newspaper idea, which was very new at that time, was, was a way to do this. How did those uh, initial attempts at creating a street newspaper work out? 
Well, there were a whole bunch of different ones. I mean, this was in 92, and then the original street paper was Street News and in New York, which took off like a rocket and inspired a number of other efforts by folks that weren't talking to each other. In Chicago, there was Streetwise, which had a sort of a social services model to it. In London, there was the big issue that had more of a social entrepreneurial take on it and was a, a business grounded in it street newspaper. My take on it was as an organizing project, and and I was a, a Linskyist organizer, and my idea was that all the decisions needed to be made by the homeless folks that were involved in the paper. And frankly, you know, it was idealistic and rather disastrous. What, what, had, what happened? How was it disastrous? I had crack addicts who had access to the bank account. I had, you know, a guy who appointed himself at the dire- as the director who was kind of a stone sociopath and created a lot of difficult conflict in the organization. I got kicked out. <laughs> um, and, you I know, can, I, I can only imagine how it must feel to be kicked out of the organization you had found to organize. Well, at the time, it was quite a relief, frankly. And, and you know, I didn't, why was that? Well, because it, it was it was a way for me to transition the project over to the people who were running it. It was like, okay, fine. You want to run this without my support at this point? That's fine with me. I'm going to help you do that. And it was kind of a rocky road for them, but, you know, they, they did it. And it freed me up to go somewhere else and organize another street paper along a more sustainable model. And was that Seattle then? That was Seattle, yeah. Okay, so now I got to dig back, right? Because the question has to come up, how did you get into this work? How did you find, you know, how did you decide that homeless organizing was something you wanted to do? Well, I've always had a real personal connection to it um, because, you know, I was, uh, I was a teenage runaway. I got kicked out of all three high schools in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in 10th grade. Um, I was a high school dropout. I wound up going into the Air Force as a route to college. Uh, but before that, you know, I lived on what was Sioux Falls' version of Skid Row. I mean, my room was above the Arrow Bar and across the street from the Nashville Club. And, and you know, homeless and marginal folks were, were my people. And, you know, as I went to college and figured out how to be middle class, I experienced that kind of, I had experienced that kind of social marginality and economic marginality and connected to it at a deep level. So, you know, as I I grew as an activist, when I was a student at UMass, I really, you know, threw myself into organizing and activism and my degree was in social thought and political economy and I minored in journalism. Homelessness was an issue that just really spoke to me as this kind of a tip of the iceberg for a whole bunch of larger questions about economic justice and who gets what and and who's marginalized and what's normal and, and all of that. Which is interesting because Amherst, Mass, Massachusetts is a you know small New England town. Exactly. Out in the middle of everywhere. How did you find it, you know, but you found a community of organizers at the time, obviously. 
I did, and it was a culture shock for me, you know, because I, uh, well, you know, I basically didn't go to high school, so going to college was a whole thing in itself. But also it was sort of, you know, my encounter with with the mores of the professional middle class and, and people who came from more privileged backgrounds than I did and sort of learning how to navigate all of that, you know. So I fell into the Radical Student Union, which was sort of a, a hub of activism around all sorts of issues. And that was really my home when I was in college. And, and I lived in co-op housing with a bunch of other activists. And, and you know, being, being a radical activist was the identity that kind of got me through college and propelled me forward in life. And, and as I moved forward with that, you know, it's kind of been this journey over the last 25 years from, you know, being the sort of nightmare student activist who's clearly still rebelling against their parents to uh-huh. it coming from a more authentic place that's based in relationships and, and love and not a sort of a place of knee-jerk oppositionality. But you are well-known, at least in this community, as being a knee-jerk oppositional. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. You're kind of bringing it out. It's every once in a while you get, you hear this trope about yeah. politics, yeah. which is somebody is, can disagree without being disagreeable. Right. And how do you react when you hear that phrase? I think that you have to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. I mean, that's that balance of of speaking the truth and at the same time not making assumptions and labeling people as the enemy when they aren't necessarily so. That's not how you bring people along. But sometimes the very act of disagreement uh, paints one as being the disagreeable one. Well, you know, we we all can't live in a happy Shangri-La where we all agree with each other, you know. I mean, it's not a sort of a post-conflict society where where everybody's on the same page and if you're not there's something wrong with you. Clearly there's a lot to disagree about, but you know, we need to be able to disagree productively. So, you I mentioned this earlier, your activism. You told me in an earlier phone call about your your the student trip to DC that you took. Tell tell me about that trip. Right, that was when I first connected to homelessness and it was mass arrest around Mitch Snyder. He was a national level activist over the 80s that really defined homeless organizing during the Reagan era. Um, And he was on a 42-day fast where he almost died to get funding for a major shelter in the D.C. area. And there were about 90 people um, who got arrested in a mass civil disobedience. And our little cohort of student activists from UMass Amherst rented a van and drove to D.C. And we got arrested for Mitch. And and I spent three days in D.C. Central Cell Block because we were all far too pure to bail ourselves out with the 75 bucks. And, and it was a, 
great experience. Why was it a great experience? It was a great experience because here was this fundamental economic injustice that wasn't being resolved. And people from all over the country came to D.C. to say, this isn't right and we're going to put our bodies on the line here. And that was the first time I'd ever done something like that. You uh, talk about it with a lot of pride. Well, you know, I mean, I think that those are the sort of moments that help to define a life well-lived, you know? I mean, what are we doing here? What are we doing with our lives? And if we're not doing something that matters and is making a better world, as to how I'm built anyway, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. in and, and for me... My engagement in homelessness has been, you know, as much as it's a part of building a better world, it's also about, you know, the sort of self-interest in there is what opportunity does this offer me to become a more full human being? You know, that's, that's interesting. I've, I've occasionally had people talk to me about that I'm altruistic and I don't ever buy it. Because yeah, I mean, I get that all the time. You know, people right. find out that I start a real change and they're like, oh, you're so noble. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I get so much more out of this than I put into it. Right. It feels good. Right. It feels good to feel like you're doing something meaningful. And it's more than that. It, it's this opportunity to be a full 360 degree human being and really rise to the occasion that life offers. And not everybody gets that. Most people don't. Yeah, the four years I spent as mayor, the years leading up to it where I was getting into, you know, larger and larger political battles and occasionally being called disagreeable were, for me, they were the most stressful, you know, they were the hardest and they're just the most vivid yeah. as well, right? That sense of, you know, full and active engagement. You said 360 life, but just like, and trying to build a team and trying to hit on all cylinders, try to respond to all the different things, which got progressively harder. But there's an interesting thing. I mean, you, the, the cause that propelled me was global warming. And it doesn't mm -hmm. look good, folks. Right? Yeah. We all know that. It looks really, really bad. And the cause that has propelled you is an issue of... Radical inequality. Radical inequality, yeah. And it's funny. I don't think people picked up on it too much, but my standard stump speech when I was running, I viewed our challenges as inequality, global warming, and um, racism. Yeah. You know, how do we live together as a multicultural much, system? Right. I pretty like much agree with that list. Right, right. And, and the depth of my understanding of racism and inequality got deeper as mayor because I got a far, far closer look at it. So the question is, you know, you went to D.C., you got arrested, you've successfully created organizations that have endured to advocate and yet last one night count in Seattle, which we, you know, people go out to count all of the homeless people that are outside sleeping in King County at over 3,000 people, which is up from the, you know, somewhat over 2,000 we had King just County a few number, years earlier. The King County number of unsheltered was 3,772, oh which was a... 20% increase over the previous year and the, the biggest number and the biggest increase that we've ever seen. I know this is going to sound like a trite question, but you know, you're, you're, you're working so hard, you're seeing success in organizing, you're seeing a sustaining paper that gives real sustenance to people who need it. 
Right. And you're falling behind further, and we are falling further and further behind on the issue. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, it's all a process. It's all a process, and, and you know, you have to take the long view. Um, and one of the things that I feel really great about with Real Change is that you know, not only is it a quality newspaper, last year we got 16 regional first place news news industry awards, but it is this enormous community of readers and supporters and activists who are all engaged together across class and, and you know, in the good fight to turn things around. And there are a lot of systemic reasons for this growth and radical inequality. But the one thing that I do know is that it takes a lot of people and an engaged community to turn that around. And it will never happen without the kinds of institutions that real change represents. Um, And it's all about you know, building that foundation for the long-term fight. So what's the big, what are the big battles right now? Like what are the things that you are looking at right now saying, here's what we want to make a difference on. And what are the biggest obstacles to achieving those outcomes? Yeah. Well, I think that Seattle is, I mean, Seattle is the global city on steroids. Uh, Inequality is rising everywhere, but here more so than a lot of places. And you said the global city. What do you mean by that? It's a global hub, you know? I mean, cities have become these these sort of centers of urban living and, and affluence, but some cities are more global than others. And Seattle is a, you know, in a global era, it is a global hub of, of business and, and commerce and that sort of thing. So, you know, the kind of trends that we're seeing elsewhere are exacerbated here. Um, and I think, you know, one of the recent illustrations of that was the income census of 2013, which showed that the incomes of the top quintile in Seattle had, had risen by more than $17,000 on average over the previous year. And incomes at the bottom quintile were flat at an average of around $14,300. So in a single year, we had incomes for the top quintile rise by more than the entire average income of the bottom quintile. And, you know, when people wonder why we're seeing this this continuing explosion of homelessness, the numbers of unsheltered rising by 20% last year alone. I don't think you have to look much further than that, you know? I mean, how do you afford housing in a city where rents are rising more quickly than pretty much anywhere else in the nation when your average income at the bottom quintile, the bottom 20%, is around $14,000 a year? So you look at this, I mean, the phrase you made earlier was organizing around homelessness was a way to get, because it was the tip of the iceberg of inequality. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think that there is this 
kind of a happy pretense that we can solve homelessness merely through technocratic human services interventions if only we get the right mix of comprehensive services and 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 you know different agencies working together to achieve efficiencies and so on and so forth i mean we've been doing that we've been doing that for a long time and and the human services industry has become quite efficient in in delivering services but they are a triage tent on the front lines of the war on the poor, and this war on the poor is undeclared. You know, I mean, it is really fundamentally about widening inequality and the abandonment in a, of the poor and a system where housing is based primarily on profit. The folks who can't provide a profit don't get housing. Um, and, you know, I think those are the kind of dynamics that we have to understand if we're ever going to see anything that looks like an end of homelessness. Um, that we can't do it through just human services intervention. It's about the larger questions of who gets what in our society and what's too much and what's too little and can we actually just abandon people and expect that to be okay. So when you look at what's happening in politics in Seattle, Mm -hmm. and granted we're a global city subject to major forces, Mm -hmm. And you look at what's happening at politics across the nation, things like the Occupy movement, um, minimum wage gaining strength nationwide. Where do you where do you put it? You know, which way is the pendulum swinging and how fast? I think the Occupy movement put inequality on the map and made it a national conversation in a way that it hasn't been before. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is doing the same thing around um, racial justice issues um, and and how they intersect with law enforcement and incarceration. Both of those are conversations that we need to confront. Um, I think the minimum wage movement that is sweeping the country is very powerful and that this is something that is achievable now that will make a big difference in people's lives. Um, and as much as I, I hate to see Nick Licata leaving the city council, I'm very excited for him to be engaging in building this movement of municipalities working together to change the national conversation, because that's what needs to happen, you know, in this sort of in this in this context of of austerity politics, you know, both here and around the world, um, it's the urban centers who get left holding the bag for the right. abandonment at the national and state level, yeah. and and they've got to push back. Yeah, not just push back, but step up too. Absolutely, that's the other thing you see. The money's not there at the state and federal levels the way. It used to be, and it's not coming back. Right, either. but as you well know from being mayor, there is a limit to what cities can do to backfill the loss of funding from the feds and, and from the state level. Seattle has been pretty good about doing that, but long-term, that's not a sustainable no. strategy. No, but and I, it's long-term not a sustainable strategy, and nor is dealing with all of it as a form of triage, as you put it. You've right. got to get at the root causes 
and the root causes are, you know, wages and income for those that need it most, which has been in retreat for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, national, local, we have the most regressive state and local tax system in the nation here in Washington state. We can't quite seem to get an income tax. So we'll have to see whether that type of thing shifts as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, homelessness often gets framed as this matter of personal dysfunction, you know, it being about people who, you know, for, for their own bad choices, don't have the skills to compete in the labor market. That It's about alcoholism, addiction, mental illness. You know, the frame is about fixing broken people and the frame really needs to be about fixing a broken system that abandons so many people and leaves them without the means to have a decent life in our society. Advice for a young activist. What would you tell them? Advice for a young activist? You know, I think that you need to expect to pay your dues. (laughs) You know, I mean, you do this work because it's the right thing to do and you find the ways to make money to feed heart and soul. I mean, I've, I've, you know, been a proofreader. I've done night shifts at homeless shelters. There were a number of years, you know, before I really got paid to do the work that I want to do. But, you know, I think people need to follow their passion the money needs to be secondary and, you know, you do it long enough, you get your, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell would put it, you get your 10,000 yeah. hours in and you get yeah. good at it and then, you know, people will pay you to do it. But there's that dues you got to pay first. Advice to the 20-year-old Tim Harris? Mm-hmm. Is that it? That's it. Pay your dues. Pay your dues. Pay your bills. Your feed your soul. That's right. Yeah. So you, you talked about a broken system. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take a minute here to tee up the close. I played a song that speaks to me, and I asked you to pick a song that speaks to you. So you picked, tell me what you picked. Bob Dylan's Everything is Broken. Why do you pick this song? You know, I mean, at the risk of, of shading over to that kind of corrosive cynicism that we discussed earlier, you know, when I look around, this is what I see. You know, it's this overwhelming feeling that things are just busted and that we need to fix it at a very fundamental level. And the whole thing's kind of coming down around our ears and, you know, our window for making a difference isn't uh, isn't indefinite. So if somebody comes to you and says, don't worry, Tim, we got a handle on this. <laughs> that person's insane. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Tim Harris for fun. joining us. This was fun. Broken 